Breaking the Borderline Stigma. I'm Kristen Nicole. I'm a life coach for highly sensitive women and women with borderline personality disorder, helping you to create a protective emotional skin to learn to love all of you and to let your gorgeous light shine despite the darkness. And by the way, I'm also a highly sensitive person and a BPD conqueror myself. Hello, 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 and welcome, welcome to this week's episode. I am super excited to share this information with you. But before we get started into the content, I just wanted to give a quick reminder about joining the pod squad for breaking the borderline stigma. Super simple. All you have to do is click the link to join the pod squad. The link is in the show notes and then share out your favorite episodes. And in doing so, you will essentially get some awesome prizes. Um, Even if you just share one time, you're still going to get something. So it's pretty cool. It's really a win-win situation. And just real quick, those prizes that are up for grabs are um, tier one is access to Decoded, the Common Joyful Life audio course. This is an introductory course of mine to stress management. Tier two is Embrace the Beauty of You group coaching call. So you would be able to partake in that. And then tier three is a private one-to-one Create Your Thriving Life coaching call experience with me where you and I would work together privately. So with that, let's go ahead and jump right in. So for this episode, I wanted to invite on a special guest um, to talk about trauma as it relates to BPD. And if you recall in my last episode, I had mentioned that um, my coach, Dr. Lee Cordell, who is here with me today, is a trauma-informed coach, and she did this talk talking about the five phases, and Lee, you can correct me, I know it's not the five phases of trauma, but like the five responses, which is fight, flight, freeze, (laughs) trip over my own words, fawn and faint. And when I was listening to the training, it was like tripping me out really, because I was Mm. like, oh my God, I can relate (laughs) so entire life. Um, And just looking at, because in my last episode, I talked about the nine different criteria for being diagnosed with BPD. And of course, and I will just say again, I usually say in every podcast, I am not a therapist. I'm not a mental health professional. This is really my own experience though, and, and um, helping others to overcome it. Um, So I, but I think it's important to be informed on what the criteria are, because if, if you are listening to this and you feel like you might maybe have um, borderline personality disorder, then, and, and you've heard those criteria, then I really encourage you to go and speak with someone who is a mental health professional. But that aside, when I was 
listing those. And then I heard your talk on trauma. It just was like, oh my gosh, okay, here's a symptom of BPD. And this is how it, you know, this is like the trauma response or this is. So I wanted, I asked Dr. Lee to come on and she graciously said, yes. So I'm super excited to have you on here to talk about those. But before we get into that, if you can just kind of give the listeners a little bit of an introduction of your background and, and then kind of get into some of, of the material, that would be awesome. Yeah. I'm super excited to be here. I'm so glad you asked me. You've taught me so much just in our time working together about BPD because it's one of those diagnoses that we don't talk a lot about in the the nursing world. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've had one or two patients with BPD. And then when you described it, I was like, wow, that's completely different than what I thought it was. So I'm appreciative of you and glad I could be here. So my name is Dr. Lee Cordell. I am a trauma-informed anti-shame coach. So I really work with um, professionals and entrepreneurs to help them see where their past painful learning is tripping them up, where some dysregulation in their body is occurring and help them really um, integrate and relearn some of the ways that they can show up for themselves so that they can feel better in their own bodies. They can fall back in love with themselves and, and really, uh, be more visible and more vulnerable and feel safe doing so. And I recently founded the Institute for Trauma and Psychological Safety as a larger um, systemic organizational mechanism to help people do that. So uh, the talk that you were describing is in my Facebook group, Becoming Trauma-Informed, Creating Safer, Shame-Free Spaces. And I started that group. And part of the reason I do the work that I do, I want to be sure to share here is I am um, an individual with complex PTSD and complex PTSD and BPD are really similar. Um, And so I actually remember several years ago when I was trying to figure out what the heck was going on with me. I was like, I know something's not right. I'm pretty sure not everyone feels this way. And also, I don't know what this is even with all of the, the, um, training I had as a nurse practitioner and, um, experience I had in the healthcare field, I looked at the symptoms of BPD and I was like, is this it? And then I was like, no, cause those nine criteria you talked about, I was like, no, that's not quite it, but like similar mm-hmm. close. And, um, so yeah, the, the live we talked about when you said, oh my gosh, we have a lot of the same dysregulatory, uh, experiences. I was like, yeah, I bet you do. This makes so much sense. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's the thing too. I was like everything, I could see everything linking up together. And I know when we, so when we first met and I, and I said to you, you know, look, I, I was diagnosed with BPD, which even at that point I was kind of freaked out to share because I'm like, I know the judgment that comes along with it. Um, but I'm like, whatever, I'm just going to put it out there. And I know you said to me, okay, cool. That just tells me you have a lot of trauma in your past, you know? And it was like, it was that lack of judgment where it's like, yeah, all right. Ain't no thing. That's okay. You you know, um, that I was like, oh, okay. So it's okay. I can actually, you know, admit that and, and not be persecuted for it, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, but so that, and, and even in, in working with you, it's made me realize because even at that point I was like, Oh man, trauma, like, sure. Like shit's happened to me, but whatever shit's happened to everybody sort of thing. I didn't actually think of it as a trauma type 
of stuff, but in working with you, I've since learned like, oh my gosh, like, holy crap. And then even thought too, like, who would I be or who would anybody be without all the trauma, right? Like, I mean, it's who you are at your core before all the shit happened, I guess. But um, which I think everybody in that aspect is a wonderful person and it's getting back to that sort of thing. But yeah, not to derail the conversation, but (laughs) no, gosh, that was such a beautiful, like a beautiful just note, because I think that you're right that a lot of times we take the things that have happened to us and we make them part of our character. That is shame, by the way, is taking the negative pieces and parts of us that like, or the, the, or I should say that's actually kind of like the opposite of shame. So what a lot of us do is we're like, okay, these things happen to me. Right. And so that's who I am. And shame is, okay, who I am is these negative things. And that doesn't feel good. So they are very, very like closely interconnected. And, you know, from what I know about BPD, it's, you know, it's emotional dysregulation at its core, right? We don't, you don't have emotional regulation modeled for you. Yeah. They're like the ability to have another human's nervous system be calm and grounded and regulated when you are dysregulated as a kid is something that just, uh, that people with BPD often don't have. Mm -hmm. And complex PTSD is, is similar in that there's not normally for complex PTSD, there's not normally a issue of like, I feel abandoned or I feel rejected or I feel neglected. I feel like somebody wasn't there for me. It's more of a, I feel much more shame around who I am and how I was taught I'm allowed to show up. Mm-hmm. And so complex PTSD usually has a lot more um, issues with shame and self-worth more than like, we trust that people are going to be there for us, right? We trust that people are going to be there for us. It's just, we can't show up as our full, authentic, vulnerable selves with those people Yeah. versus I don't actually trust that this person is going to like be there for me or be able to meet my needs at all. So there's, they're close and there's a lot of overlap with the two as well. Yeah. Well, and one of the things too is, um, so I was listening to the body keeps the score, which I started listening Mm -hmm. to before we started working together, um, on the recommendation of a, of a mutual friend and, um, and listening to that. And they, he gets to the part where he talks about BPD and wanting to make complex PTSD an actual diagnosis that's in the DSM five. And then Mm -hmm. it didn't get approved and how it was actually doing people with BPD a disservice because a lot of people with BPD have that complex PTSD, not all of them, um, Mm -hmm. but a lot of them do. And some, so sometimes I think I, if I remember correctly, I think he said too, that people will get diagnosed with BPD when really it is more of a complex PTSD thing. Yeah. But they don't have a diagnosis. So they, there wasn't a diagnosis. Yeah. That's what they throw it into. Thank goodness. Complex PTSD is, and I've actually been out of clinical practice since December. So I'm not sure if it's happened yet or not. Um, 
but complex PTSD is going into the ICD 11, which are the codes that we use as clinicians to bill insurance. And that's a huge thing Yeah, because, um, if I don't have a code to be able to tell the insurance company, Hey, this is what you're paying for me to see this person for a lot of times they won't pay. Mm -hmm. And so people will get inaccurately diagnosed just so that the insurance company will cover the thing. And that in itself can be traumatic when they're, when your, your clinicians like, Hey, this is like, when you open up the bill or you look at the hospital um, record and they've labeled you with something and you're like, wait, we didn't even talk about that. Like, what do you, what do you mean? And sometimes that is a way that we are trying to make sure that everything that we did for you is covered. And so like, it's just one more thing with the medical system that we're like, ugh. but the good part is, is that that is changing. That is, um, and complex PTSD is something that's starting to be seen as an actual diagnosis. And the other cool thing that's starting to happen is like the fact that this podcast is here, the fact that you're talking about this, like we're finally getting to the point after a very long time that we're willing to talk about. And I don't call it mental illness. I just say, you know, um, mental health dysregulation or disorders, Mm -hmm. ways that people, people's mental health is not fully optimized. And I think that that fact that we're starting to break that stigma that we're starting to even be able to feel safer, not safe, but safer talking about it is really huge. Yeah. Well, one of the things I've always said, because of course I've struggled with, and I didn't have a name for it, but I mean, I can date my anxiety back to being six years old, um, mm-hmm. but growing up. And I think as I became a young adult, I, I always started to question, I'm like, why is it that we stigmatize people with um, mental health struggles or, you know, that they're, they're battling internally. We stigmatize them for that. And we just tell them to snap out of it, but someone has a heart attack and we don't necessarily stigmatize them for that. I mean, we could, you know, depending on the situation, but in general, you don't stigmatize. It's still your body turning against you or working against you in some way. Like, but yet we look at it as the mental health thing is like, oh, you can just snap out of it. There's nothing wrong with you. And I've never understood that sort of mentality of, oh, it's, it's all in your head. Okay. Well, maybe, but so what it's, if it, if you have a heart attack, oh, okay. It's all in your blood vessels. Like, yeah. It's all in your heart. Right. He's like, <laughs> well, and I want to even take this a step further. One of the things that I've learned and that wasn't talked about in my traditional nursing education is that the body is always trying to heal itself. Mm -hmm. The body, your body is designed. Your body is a machine, a self-healing machine. It is designed to be like, Oh, there's an issue here. Let me try to heal it. And humans because, you know, we have forgotten that we're animals and that our bodies are, you know, we, we live in animal bodies with this cool new neocortex, prefrontal cortex part of our brain that tells us that we're more special than all the other animals, right? We forget that like when we have pain or when we have a symptom or when something start, stops functioning the way that it used to, that's not our body turning against us. That's not our body doing us wrong. That's our body sending us a message. Mm-hmm. That's our body saying, hey, we're trying to heal this and there's something in the way. So 
when I started taking that perspective on my body, I was like, wow. Okay. So this is a whole new level of shame release of being like, why, why can't my body heal itself? No, my body's sending me a very direct message. Like, Hey, something's wrong here and we're doing all we can and we need some help. And when you start to look at it like that, it's like, why on earth would we shame people for then getting those messages that something isn't that, that the body needs help and like going out and trying to seek that help. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. No, no. It's funny. I think it all goes back to, I feel like you can equate everything to um, fear in a way. It's like fear of what you don't understand. Okay. So someone else one day decided, Hey, you know what? You're too emotional for me. I don't understand that there's something wrong with you, but it's not, there's nothing wrong with that person. And, and one of the things that one of my friends said to me was, you know, other people's lack of ability to understand your emotions is not your fault. It's their fault Mm. and not being able to understand the emotions. Now, you know, even if you don't want to attribute fault necessarily, they weren't taught that. I guess it'd be more of them not being open or willing to accept yeah. that, you know? Um, yeah. And which I just thought was was also a brilliant way to to put it too, because I think for me, a lot of me growing up was, of course, being told I was too sensitive. <laughs> and it was one of those, oh my gosh, Christine, you're so sensitive. Why are you? Yeah. And I know, and it came from a good place where it was like, you know, trying to get me to quote unquote, have thicker skin, which is a whole other thing. I hate that term, <laughs> which I plan on doing a podcast episode about later. Um, but it it came from a good place. But what it told me was my emotions weren't valid. I was not, I, I was too much. Why couldn't I just calm down? Why couldn't I just get over it? What, you know, like all of this stuff and, and eventually, and I created the story in my head of, okay, all of this stuff is wrong with me because someone else doesn't re- respond that way. And I do. So it's, you know, there's something wrong with me. And as I've started learning about all of this and working with you, it's like, no, there's, it's, it's a reaction to, um, to things that have happened in my past and that I'm having that reaction. Oftentimes it would come in as an adult of suppressing my emotions. And I have said this to my audience too, like suppressing your emotions is not a way of managing your emotions. It's going to come back in one way or another. So yeah, again, your body's going to be like, this is not, nope, we're going to, we're going to pop this back up to you over and over and over until you deal with it Yeah, until you handle it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then one day you just explode and you have no idea why, or, you know, it like when it comes to the whole fear of abandonment thing, maybe you had a parent who in some way abandoned you, they might've been there physically, maybe they neglected you or whatever. Um, and you never really dealt with it. So now you have these emotions that come up with other people thinking that they're going to abandon you or something else is going to happen. And it's not necessarily that you're worried about that, but you don't know that on a conscious level, it's it, you go back to that whole remembering that like your parent abandoned you essentially, or, you know, your caretaker or whatever, but it's just, it's just interesting when I listen to you talk about it and like all of the connections that there are Mm -hmm. and yet nobody talks about it or like, I, I even feel like thinks to try to understand it because we, we, we live in this patriarchal society where we're essentially taught that, or at least I, my perspective, we're essentially taught that emotions are bad. 
you know, and we do that to men, man up, don't, don't let your emotions take control, that sort of thing. And so we automatically just start feeling like I'm feeling some sort of way and I can't tell other people about it because they wouldn't understand and they wouldn't accept it. Yeah. You know, one of the, I have a lot of thoughts here, so I'm going to see if I can organize them into like a a, a clear progression. So one of the things that has been really helpful for me, even just over the last year is like, as I've been doing this anti-shame work and really releasing a lot of the shame around myself, it's also and, and, and bringing in compassion for myself. It's also allowed me to start having compassion for not just individuals, but like for systems as well. Mm-hmm. And I get, you know, I, I, for a while I was really mad. I was really mad at our, you know, puritanical patriarchal society. And then I started having these thoughts of like, okay, but like, how did this happen? Right. How did we get here? And as humans, the last couple hundred years for us, have been like exponential change and Mm -hmm. exponential growth, even from a cognitive standpoint, right? The ability for us to like, think about our own thinking, the ability for us to have as much information at our fingertips as we do and have to process as much as we do. And while we're still living in very animal bodies, right. That have been that, that, evolution has been relatively slow for, for the last, however many tens of thousands of years. But like, also we went from, we're going to live in these communal spaces with these small groups where shame is actually a protective mechanism, right? Because Mm -hmm. if we don't have definitions of what allows you to stay in the community versus what stays out of the community, the whole community dies. If you're able to do things that don't serve us, that put us in danger, then we can all die. So shame has to be a part of this because that is how we keep our community alive to now, you know, post-industrial revolution where we're like in nuclear families and where we're all, where we do a lot of things at a solitary individual level. Shame doesn't work well now. Because there are so many different parts of society that we are in, right? Like we're in. Now actually usually has the opposite effect of what it used to do. It used to call people in and now it calls people out. And so I can have a lot of compassion for our society that we still are using shame because like. Again, so much change over the last several hundred years. And I can have compassion for something and still disagree with it, right? Yeah. I can have um I can have compassion for you and still be like, and this isn't the way that like this isn't working. So that is a lot of what we're doing at the institute is like instead of um you know, getting mad at these systems and getting frustrated with these systems, how can we have compassion? How can we have some understanding for why they developed the way that they did? And then how can we, by showing compassion to that system, call its members in, call its leaders in and help them see that there's, that this isn't working and like, how can we shift it? Yeah. And I also get that, like, that is a very, (laughs) 
Um, that, that is a, a hard way to think that that is a hard way to think in today's society. Like it is a really hard way to be like, you know what? I'm going to, yeah. Like I'm going to show compassion to each and every human. Like I'm not going to shame people. I'm not going to hate things. Um, that's, that is, and, and I'm not perfect. Like I know I'm sitting over here, like talking about this very evolved way of thinking. There are plenty of times, like catch me in traffic one day and like, see that I am not always an evolved human. Right. (laughs) But like, if we can actually start thinking that way and, and getting at that level, this actually will help us collectively heal a lot of trauma. This will help us collectively release a lot of shame. And then the cool part about that is, is that that affects how many people end up with diagnoses like the ones that we have. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the things that came out of what you were just saying. And the other one is, it's just like, just actually having a definition for, of trauma for people to understand. Cause like trauma informed is the new buzzword. It's like the new personal development or, you know, um, self-esteem of the eighties, right? Everyone's like trauma informed, trauma informed. Even like, we need to have a clear definition of what that means. And trauma informed the definition for me, um, that I feel like is a good one for us to use based on like what a lot of experts define it as as well, is just, it means that we're going to see people as people with painful past experiences that affect how they show up in their daily lives. So if I'm acting in a trauma-informed way, it means that when you do something that I'm like, whoa, what was that? Right. Like when you have a reaction and we can talk about those five F's, right? Like when we see someone have a trauma expression, we don't go like that person's messed up. Instead, we're like, wow, that was unexpected. I wonder what has happened to that person in their past that made them just act the way that they did. Mm-hmm. And we like separate out the behavior from the character instead of just being like, oh, that person's weird or they're dumb or they're mean or they're crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the things I mentioned in my, um, in, I think it was my second episode, I, I watched this, um, Apple TV plus series called the me you can't see. And one of the mm-hmm. questions that and Oprah and Prince Harry host it, and one of the questions they they even talk about, you know, when you see somebody who has this sort of reaction, oftentimes our like a societal normal reaction is what's wrong with you, but that's not the right question. It's what happened to you. Yeah, that's the that is trauma that is trauma informed in yeah. a sentence. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, even when they said that, I'm like, oh my God too. And it, because it, it, it takes that, um, I can't think of the right right word, but it, it doesn't put you on the defensive so much. If someone says, what's wrong with you? It's like, fuck you. What's wrong with me? I'm fine. Sort of thing, (laughs) you know? And all of a sudden you just go off on this thing where it's okay. What happened to you? You know? And like, you just have this different sort of reaction to it. Yeah. It also changes when you come at a situation from a, instead of what's wrong with you to a, what's happened to you, um, perspective, it actually changes how you show up in your body towards Mm -hmm. that person. And it creates psychological safety. And when I say psychological safety, psychological safety means I feel safe 
being my full, messy, authentic self in front of you. And you're not going to judge me or shame me. That is what psychological safety is. So this is why most of us are the messiest, (laughs) the most imperfect people with the people that we love. Because there is, for a lot of us, and for, you know, with BPD, this may not be the case, but for a lot of us, there is at least one person in our life that we love and we feel really connected to that we can, that we feel psychologically safe with, that we can be our whole ass messy self. Mm -hmm. Because we know that no matter how if no matter if we lose our shit, no matter if we, you know, say something that isn't the, isn't the most kind or compassionate thing to say that like, this is the human that will let us clean it up. Yeah. And we need more spaces like that. The other thing I want to say too, is like, you know, when you say, instead of going saying what's wrong with you, instead saying what happened to you, we're not taking away this person's responsibility to not be a jerk or act like a jerk, right? Even that language, not be a jerk, act like a jerk, right? We're not saying it's cool that you just lost your, you know, lost your cool on me and yelled at me and screamed at me. That's not what we're saying. And in fact, when we show up like, Hey, what just happened? to send you into that response, that's actually a better way of helping that person like check in with themselves and be like, oh, wow, you're right. That response didn't match this situation. That isn't how I wanted to show up. That doesn't feel good to treat you that way. Mm-hmm. My bad. Yeah. You're more likely to help that person see that the way that they be they are behaving is not the way that they desire to behave by giving them that compassion and giving them that like attunement, which attunement is full focused attention and unconditional acceptance. Zero judgment. When you when somebody shows up with you when you're acting in a way that, you know, is triggered or that is emotionally activated and they give you attunement, they give you their full focused attention and they give you unconditional acceptance. It is so much easier to look at what you are doing and be like, oh, this isn't what I want to do. You know, it's funny saying that, like, I think about that even with my kids, right? Like Mm -hmm. when, when you're, when my kids start having like a tantrum or whatever, a lot of times the reaction will be that the initial reaction would, would be for the parents or, you know, to yell. And Mm -hmm. what I found is with my, even my three-year-old, when I've actually said in a calm fashion to them, okay, I, you know, I can see you're upset. I can under, I understand that you're angry, like, and taking an approach of essentially what happened, what, why, Mm -hmm. you know, what's going on inside? Why do you feel like this? Or, you know, Mm -hmm. um, they calm down so much faster. It's like, I mean, like my, my son will be having a straight on like hysterical crying, like, Oh my God, because he didn't get a snack that night or something, you know? And it's like, I'll go back into his room and start talking to him. And within two or three minutes, he's completely calm and going back to like baseline. As opposed to taking the, 
um, non-trauma informed, <laughs> you know, reaction of like, oh, yeah. I'm just going to yell and say, stop crying. Like what's going on? You know, like, I don't care. Yeah. Go to your room. You know, that sort of thing. And I think as parents, like that's, a, you know, like a normal reaction, not to say it's a good reaction, but I think it happens a lot. Um, yeah. but taking that step back and then being like, okay, let, let's actually have a conversation about it. I've just seen mm-hmm. a, so much difference with, even with him. Yeah. And like doing that for yourself too. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's the important thing too, for, you know, cause I, I have a feeling that there will be someone who will listen to this and think, but I don't have anybody who's going to sit there and say to me, what happened to you? I, I yeah. think doing it for yourself when you have this big reaction to something or yeah. you're feeling exceptionally emotional, being, being gentle with yourself and saying, essentially saying, okay, what, what happened to me? And not even necessarily being ans- being able to answer the question. I, I don't know, like from my perspective, if I just, just thinking about like my reactions when, when things mm-hmm. like that happen and I think, okay, why am I reacting like that? Where did that come from sort of thing? But in yeah, a yeah. very much of like, that just calms me down so much more and yeah. makes me, makes me more level-headed. So this goes into like the original thing that we were going to talk about, which I love that we haven't talked about it yet. This has been so good. Um, so there's a method that I teach people in my spaces and it's called the easy method. And it's a method of emotional regulation and it starts with, okay, I'm emotionally activated. And then the next step is awareness Mm -hmm. and just getting to that moment of awareness of like, I am showing up in a way I am acting in a way that is incongruent with how I want to show up in this situation, noticing that I am activated, that I am triggered. That is the single most powerful thing you can do. And it's also really hard. (laughs) Yeah. It's really hard. And, and one of the things that I have my clients do is practice awareness after the fact. I'm like, I don't even want you to catch yourself in it yet. Like, let's not even put that pressure on you yet. Right. Let's just start noticing after we're activated and it comes down because one of the things that makes it really hard to notice in the moment that you're emotionally activated or that you're hashtag triggered is that your prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that is reasonable, rational, logical, can think about your actions and decisions and why you're doing what you're doing, that isn't getting blood flow. That isn't getting neurotransmitters. It is shut down and offline while you are in that activated state. And when I learned that, that was so helpful. That was so permission giving for myself to be like, Oh, the reason why it's so hard for me to stop myself in those moments is because my brain literally isn't working. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not a me thing. And for people with BPD or complex PTSD or other emotional regulatory disorders, that is like just one of the most expansive things that you can realize is like, Oh, there's not actually something wrong with me. It's just my brain. Um, one of my, uh, my teachers that I 
studied under Dr. Eric Gentry. He talks about this. He's like, your brain is over adapted. It has learned a response so well that it's actually using it in places that it doesn't even need to. So your brain is actually like really smart. And when I heard him say that, I was like, oh, okay. So like, I can stop shaming myself for this thing that I've been doing for so long and, and, and instead like start helping my brain relearn that it doesn't have to see threat because that's, what's happening when we get triggered or we get activated is we're seeing our brain is recognizing threat. So like, if you have a parent who you never know how they're going to respond to your emotions and you start feeling an emotion when you're like 20 years in the, down the line, right? Your brain remembers, oh, remember when we were four and it was super dangerous, dangerous for us to feel our feelings because we were going to get yelled at or we were going to get physically um, reprimanded or we were going to get ignored or we were going to get shamed. Remember when that used to happen? Okay, let's, let's, let's go ahead and act that way now. Let's go ahead and shut down now or let's go ahead and fight now. Or let's go ahead and run away now because this reminds us of that. So your brain is like perceiving things in the current moment as evidence or as examples of what happened to you in the past. And it's going, oh, we know what to do here. Let's, let's lose our shit. Right. Or let's, let's completely shut down and not talk to anybody for a day. Or let's get physically frozen and not be able to move, even though our thoughts are running at like a million miles an hour. Because that was the protective mechanism that worked when you were a kid. Yeah. And so this, this is just simply, and again, not easily, but simply a remembrance of like, oh, this situation with my husband or my boss where I'm feeling emotional and they're like kind of being squirrely about it. Like this isn't the same thing as when I was younger. The threat that my brain is perceiving here, that this person's going to abandon me or neglect me or shame me, while they may do that, guess what? I'm a grown adult and I'm really well-resourced now, so I can handle that. And the likelihood that that's going to even happen is not that high. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's so funny. I think that... um a few thoughts. And of course I'll try to organize mine. I don't do a very good job of sometimes because <laughs> I get lost. <laughs> That's okay. I don't um, either. I'm like six thoughts at once. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, so one thing is, and, and I've said this to, um, on a podcast before where I feel like very much like knowledge is power, but it's the type of knowledge that you're getting. Mm. And I, I mentioned this, um, I'm, I am in several BPD groups on Facebook and someone said, you know, I feel like the more that I learned though, it's almost like the more that they shut down and which is understandable because if you go, if you start searching BPD online, you get a whole well, terrifying, it's terrifying information that makes you think that you're a lost cause, which is not the case. So when I say knowledge and power, I mean the right kind of knowledge, understanding Mm -hmm. why trying to go back to the, the beginning and understanding what happened to you. And what causes you to do things, why you do the things that you do, that sort of knowledge has been so powerful for me, at least, of, yeah. because it, it, 
it allows you to have more acceptance of yourself. And I think that once you can identify, oh, okay, that's why I do that. Then you can work to start to change it if you want to change it. Um, But if you don't have that information, how are, it's like the famous saying, you don't know what you don't know. Well, how are you supposed to change it if you don't know that it's something that A, can be changed and B, is not, is, is, is something that goes back to kind of the very beginning. Yeah. I remember I had panic attacks when I thought were panic attacks. Actually, I'm going to even clarify that I had what I thought were panic attacks for years, decades, actually. And the thing that was weird about these panic attacks is that I could, I could function through them. I could have them and they would last for hours. And typical panic attacks, like you've, if you've had a panic attack before, like there are some physiological changes that happen within that panic attack. And also there, there's this impending sense that you're going to die, right? Like that is a big part of most panic attacks. And that wasn't the feeling I was having, but I was having this feeling of like, if I can't, if I can't get out of my body, I'm not going to be okay. And, and I have the language for that now, having done what I've done, like learned what I've learned and, and done the work that I've done. And I didn't have the language for it then. So I was labeled as somebody who had panic attacks and severe anxiety. And I had anxiety induced depression because my anxiety would get so bad that I was like, God, if I have to live like this, why would I even want to live? This is awful. And so then there was a lot of mental energy going into like, well, let's find some reasons to keep doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, I was never, I would even looking back with the clinical knowledge I have now, I would never label myself as suicidal. That's not the point that I was at. I didn't want to die, but it was just like a, who would want to live life like this. Mm -hmm. And the thing of it was, is I had this beautiful family. I had this great career on the outside. If you looked at me, you couldn't tell I was anxious. I had perfected the mask like to a T, right? Except with some of the people that I really loved who got to see that messy side. And so there was a lot of shame and guilt around that of like, gosh, like the people that I love are the ones who are getting to see like the total mess of me because I'm having to hold it together all these other places. And it was not that long ago that someone was like, you're not having panic attacks. You're having emotional flashbacks. And I was like, um, please tell me more. (laughs) Yeah. And they were like, your body is remembering the trauma that you went through when you were a child. So you are actually having the physical symptoms of what you experienced when these very bad things happened to you. And you're just having them without the memory, the the mental memory. And that was so fascinating to me. I was like, wait, because I knew PTSD Mm -hmm. and PTSD, you have the visual flashback. You're like back in the thing, right? You see it, you have auditory visual hallucinations, and you have the physical symptoms of what you had in that moment. In complex PTSD, you just have the emotional flashback. So you don't have the auditory and the visual, you just have the feeling. 
And when I learned that, I was like, oh my God. That's funny. See, I didn't know that distinction between the two. So yeah, that makes a lot more sense too, in terms of why I know have complex PTSD as well. (laughs) Yes. And so when I went to my first trauma-informed therapist, because by the way, not all mental health professionals have a good grounded clinical background or education in trauma-informed therapy, which is fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. But this is a relatively, I mean, this, this is something that's developed over the last 20, 30 years. So if you have somebody who went to school 20, 30 years ago, they may not really have a good grounding in this. And some schools don't a lot of schools are now requiring this as a significant part of the education, but they weren't before. We didn't know it before, right? Yeah. So when I went to a therapist, I was like, oh yeah, that's what's going on. We can fix that. I was like, I was, there was a, there was a moment of like profound relief. And also this moment of just like utter rage. Mm-hmm. I was like, you're, you're going to sit here and tell me that as a 33 year old woman, I have been having this since I was nine. So for the last 24 years, I've been having something that could get fixed in a few sessions. Yeah. She was like, yeah, basically. I was like, neat. Okay, great. I'm going to go have some feelings about this. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so I want to normalize that for people because I think that so often like, we're like, oh, this is what this is. And then like, you are allowed to have lots of feelings about that. Mm -hmm. You are allowed to be like, oh, fantastic. Now I get to move forward and feel better. And you are also allowed to feel profound rage and sadness and grief over the fact that you've gone through what you've gone through for so long. Yeah. Because if I'm, if I'm correct, a lot of people with BPD get diagnosed, like this isn't a diagnosis that you get at 12 usually, right? Like this is something that happens later on in life. Yeah. I mean, you can be diagnosed when you're younger, but it is rare um, yeah. because it tends to, it's something that develops over time. Yeah. It's not something you're born it with. It marinates, yeah. like it marinates. Right. And then when you get to an, be an adult and you're like, wow, I'm having a really hard time functioning in this no- in quote unquote, cause this isn't actually a thing, but like quote unquote normal society. Yeah. Yep. Well, and so a couple, let me pause because a couple of takeaways there that I want to point out to anyone who's listening is one, get a good therapist because yeah. if, you, <laughs> if they're listening There's to what, bad ones, yes, that what they're saying is, you know, it's really super important to find someone who is, um, who has experience with this kind of stuff, not just a general therapist, but the one that really started making a difference for me was someone who was very focused on DBT therapy, which is dialectical Mm. behavioral therapy yeah, and had gone through lots of trainings for it. Not just one little seminar, but lots of trainings. Um, In your case, I would say, you know, someone who understood complex PTSD and the Mm. fact that it was that emotional memory, because not all therapists are going to have that sort of knowledge base. So, you know, if you, if you are with someone who is not helping you, that doesn't mean that therapy can't help you. That means that you just haven't found the right person yet, which is frustrating and it is a process, but don't give up is what I'm saying. The other thing I want, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, just really fast. Cause I want to just say like, that was my sixth therapist, I think Mm -hmm. in my life. Um, and 
uh, she uses EMDR. She also uses DBT. She's like, look, she's like, yes, we use that for BPD. And also like y'all are similar. Right. Um, and, but she uses EMDR, which is actually a way of like getting underneath of the conscious brain and getting into your subconscious where these memories are sitting there unprocessed or processed in a way that's not serving you. And you actually reprocess the memories. So that's super helpful. So yeah, DBT and EMDR are the two that I'm like, ask them if if they know what they are (laughs) awesome. If they practice them even better. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up EMDR because that's one I have not yet personally tried, but I would like to, um, Mm -hmm. because I, of, of what I have I say read, but essentially I listen to audiobooks, so heard. <laughs> but um, and then the other point that I wanted, I I want anyone listening to this to hear is when Dr. Lee said that she would have these reactions in front of her family, but nobody else. Because there is a stigma with BPD that people with BPD are essentially abusive. And mm-hmm. I think that that's part of where it comes from. You know, they may be good at hiding from people they're not close to, but the people they're close to, they explode on because of that, because it's like, they feel safer there. And it's not just a BPD thing. It's, you know, it's a trauma thing. Um, and I, so I want people to understand it's, it's not necessarily now, does that make it okay? No, it doesn't make it okay. But like, it goes back to the whole understanding why you do what you do sort of thing so that you can start working to change it. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I just wanted to point that out because I, I hear a lot in, well, I see a lot in the groups that I'm in. Um, and one of the stigmas that I, that I saw a lot that comes along with BPD is one that we can't love, which is an odd one. And, and my plans yeah. are to address some of these stigmas as the podcast goes throughout, but then also, um, that we're abusive. And I think that that's where that yeah. comes from. Because of the fact that, you know, just like you were saying, when you feel like you're safer with somebody, you tend to let go a little bit. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, those, these intimate relationships that you're having, you know, before you get into a place where you have a partner and you have your own children, like the intimate relationships that you know are with your caregivers. And if your caregivers were the ones that we're creating these attachments that like really weren't, um, didn't feel safe for you or, you know, had their own stuff going on and weren't able to show up for you in the way that like you really needed as a child. And then if there were other actual traumatic things happening, like any, um, abuse or neglect or, uh, you know, gaslighting, things like that, then it's, it makes sense that then when you get into these intimate relationships, these people are the safest people you have. And also there are parts of those relationships that don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. So I remember at one point looking up narcissistic personality disorder. Cause I was like, I feel like I'm so worried about what's going on with me that like, I can't even focus on what they need and what's going on with them. And I was like, Oh, this doesn't fit either. And it was like, but I remember thinking like it, one of the most shameful pieces about complex PTSD is sometimes you get, you get triggered so often. And so then you're acting out of, out of character, out of character, out of integrity with your morals and your values. And we call that, um, moral injury where 
when you are triggered, you do things that you, or when you are trying to find comfort in your discomfort, you do things to numb and to, to dissociate, to check out that like consciously you're like, these are not things I want to be doing. And then that feels awful. You shame yourself around it even more. You like try to clean up your act even more. And then like you keep doing it. And so then it teaches you over time, like there's something wrong with me, which is shame at its core. There's something wrong with me. And so like, I actually am very, very passionate about when I hear people use terms like emotionally abusive or narcissistic or anything like that, because those are character traits. And most of the time, what I've seen in my practice and in my own experience is that people are doing this from a place of self-protection, not from a place of trying to hurt others. Yeah. And so to label them with such a stigmatizing word does more damage than it usually does good. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's all sorts of things I could talk about too when it comes to like narcissistic personality disorder versus BPD. Again, something mm-hmm. I'll get into, <laughs> which I'd well, like I'm to talk excited to- for that episode. Yeah, like I want to listen to that. <laughs> well, and, and I'd actually like to talk to you offline about that at some point too. Um, yeah, because um, that's something that comes up a lot. Anyway, I, I won't get into that only because I know that we've been talking for a while and we haven't talked about the five A. I know. Yes. Okay. And. <laughs> And I want to make sure that you're okay to, to go a little bit longer. Yeah, I've okay. got a little bit. I've got some more time. So okay. um, thank you for asking. Yeah. So the five Fs. So we talked about like what, so trauma is something that happens to us that causes emotional or physical pain that then doesn't get resolved in the moment. So um, a lot of, when we think about like physical and psychological trauma, If there is no resolution where like the person comes back and says, Hey, that thing I just did to you, that wasn't cool. Like, talk to me about your feelings. Like, what did you go through? The problem with that is that it creates, um, uh, when we have threatening experiences like that, which as humans being, uh, cut off, being unaccepted, being neglected, being abused, like those are all, yes, they're emotional things but they feel physically dangerous in our bodies. So whenever we sense that type of threat, whether it's psychological or physical, our body, our body floods with these um, chemicals, with hormones, with neurotransmitters, it tells our body, Hey, you need to get ready to get away from this threat or to neutralize this threat in any way possible. Because if we don't, we could die. Now in animals, like that aren't humans, what they do is they go through these, um, these steps, these five F's that I'm about to explain to you. And then once the threat is gone, they have this whole physical process that they move through where they shake, where they tremor, where they physically take, make sure that all of the chemicals that got released get used up and removed from their systems so that there is, it is resolved, right? Because otherwise this would be a problem. If like every time a gazelle got in contact with a lion and like got away from the lion, but like didn't process the fact that it was almost eaten by a lion and like didn't go through the physical process of um, 
discharging all of those, uh, that energy, those Mm. chemicals, that gazelle would be walking around, like, think, think, think about a very, very, very anxious gazelle, right? It would be like unable to survive because it'd be like, oh my God, is there a lion? And and the other gazelles would be like, dude, it was just a leaf blowing. Like it's fine. Right. Mm -hmm. But I want you to think about that as humans, because as humans, so often when we experience psychological or physical trauma, we don't discharge after the occurrence, either because like culturally we've been taught not to do that. Can you imagine somebody getting into an altercation with their boss and then walking out and like physically shaking themselves everywhere, like tremoring to that point? Um, That might be seen as a weird thing to do in Mm -hmm. the work setting, right? So the five F's are like the physiological things that our body takes us through when it senses threat. So the first one is, and I actually... um, I'm going to give you guys this information now, and maybe we can do a follow-up episode on this because there's some new emerging um, threat responses that they've just discovered in the last few years that I'm still learning about. And I'm like, not ready to currently teach on, but like, that would be such a cool episode to talk about. Oh yeah. I, I um, that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, they're really cool. So the first one is um, what we call an orienting freeze. So this isn't the typical freeze. If you've heard people talk about freeze before, Um, this isn't that type of freeze that I'm talking about. The orienting freeze is like when the gazelle is on, you know, out in the, um, grass and it thinks it hears something. And you've seen this, right? We've seen like meerkats are the ones that I love to think about doing this. They like pop up and they're like scanning, right? That's the orienting freeze. That's a, I'm going to stop whatever the hell I was doing and look around and figure out, is there a threat? So one question, would you also, because I mean, I'm from Ohio, you know, very much deer in a headlight type thing. Yeah, or not deer, so same thing. Okay. Yeah, deer in the same thing. Is there a threat? But the deer are actually doing something else. We're going to talk about that because that's really, that's a, I'm so glad you brought that up. <laughs> so that's the orienting freeze. That's, that's a moment of like, is there an actual threat? And if not, I'm going to go just back to doing what I was doing. So we don't actually consider that as the freeze freeze that we're going to talk about later. But sometimes I like to distinguish that because sometimes people get those confused. So then the next thing we do is we go into fight. We're like, okay, can I fight this thing off? Am I bigger? Am I stronger? Can I just, can I beat this thing to a pulp? If yes, we're going to do that. Right Mm -hmm. now. I want you to think about that when we fight we are physically moving our body and using the chemicals that just got dumped in as a way to get rid of the threat. So fight is a discharging response. It is an expression that is a discharge. So if we fight someone, we may feel exhausted afterwards, but it usually, usually clears out those, those, um, feelings, right. And that's if we successfully fight them off, I should say. Okay. If you're, if you're, yeah. Um, this is different than like, if I'm a little kid and dad and I get in a physical altercation, even if I fight the likelihood that I fought dad off is pretty low. Right. Yep. If that doesn't work, we go into flee. We're like, can I get away from this thing? Right. And again, this is a discharge of that because we're using our muscles. We're using the extra sugar that just got dumped into our bloodstream. Our cortisol is getting processed and used by the tissues. Like all of the, the hormones that just got dumped in, I'm, I'm running those out. And this is why exercise is a great way. If you're feeling activated 
to, um, it's a great thing to use because it's a way to discharge those, um, those chemicals and that energy that just got built up in your body. So the gazelle is going to see if it can run, right? Mm -hmm. We then move into the actual freeze that I want to talk about, which is tonic immobility. And um, another animal that does this, another animal that moves straight from fight to flight to freeze is fainting goats. Like they go into freeze. Oh. <laughs> so, so we call them fainting goats, but they actually don't faint. They're still, they are still conscious. They're just frozen. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason that these animals do this, that that's their defense mechanism, um, is because animals don't want to eat animals that they haven't killed themselves, usually. They don't want to eat something that died from some other reason because they don't know why. It could be poisoned, mm. right? Yep. There could be something, it could have been rotten. And so there's bacteria. So evolutionarily, it doesn't make sense to eat an animal that's already dead. Now you've got like vultures and things like that that have developed differently. But for the um, vast majority of animals, it's, and plus it's not fun because I didn't, I wasn't the one to kill it, right? Mm. You ever seen a cat like find a dead mouse and just like pat it around, but yeah. it doesn't eat it? Cause it's like, this isn't fun, right? It's patting the mouse around to see if it's going to wake up and it gets to chase it. Yeah. Right. So that freeze state tonic immobility, my brain is working, but I can't move. I'm playing. We call that playing dead, but it's not really playing. It's very intentional mm-hmm. from a nervous system standpoint. If that doesn't work, we go into, um, what because so we've done fight we've done flight we've done freeze we then go into fawn now fawn can happen at differing levels so sometimes fawn happens up earlier and this is one of and fawn is um some animals do this but this is a pretty predominant human thing okay but some dogs do this right or wolves do this if there's a wolf that's like the one that's like, I'm in charge. The other wolves will sometimes you'll see them like bow their heads and like kind of wiggle their butts around them and be like, no, dude, you're totally it. Or they'll, they'll like flip onto their backs and show their bellies. Yep. That's a fawn. Like, Hey, you're in charge. What do you need? What can I do to make you happy? And that's the people pleasing thing that we see in humans a lot. What can I do to calm down, to calm you down, to help you feel less threatening. So then I get to feel less threatened. And then we move into um, what we call the actual faint. Now, some people say that there's actually a sixth F here called fade. There is an argument that when we dissociate, like when we check out of our bodies, but we're still there, like our body's able to move. We're just mentally like, I'm not here, (laughs) right? We all dissociate to a point during the day. But um, like when you, when you're driving and then all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, like I'm 10 miles away from where I was the last time I remember touching the steering wheel. That's dissociation, but that's not done from like a, a threat perspective. That's just your brain wandered off because it mm-hmm. feels comfortable doing the thing it's doing. Pathological or problematic dissociation, threat response dissociation is it feels so uncomfortable for me to be here, but I physically can't get out of this situation. So I'm going to check out so that I don't consciously remember what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um we see this a lot with sexual assault victims, people who are pinned in a car um, when they get in a car accident, people who get in fights and are held down or kids that are held down. 
that is not tonic immobility, right? I, my body's not freezing on its own. This is somebody else is holding my body down and I can't physically get away. So I'm going to mentally get away. Mm -hmm. So some people put that in with freeze and some people put that in with, with faint. Some people pull it out and make it, make it its own thing called fade. So whatever floats your boat. And then faint itself is I'm going to, I'm going to lose consciousness. I'm going to pass out. So I don't remember this. Um, there's, there's no way for me to make a conscious memory of this because I I'm my conscious memory is, or my conscious brain is completely offline. Yeah. Now what I want people to hear when I describe all of those is that in different situations, you're going to use different, your body is going to use different, um, uh, responses, different F's. So I might, myself, I jump into fight response with people I love because it feels safe to stay there. I feel safe fighting them off yeah. um, versus strangers. I, I usually go straight to fawn, <laughs> right? Um, and the other thing I want to say is that we move through these uh, five or six Fs, depending on how you define it, in milliseconds. So you're like, oh, I'm a fawner. I'm like, actually, you're a fighter, a fleer, a freezer, and a fawner, but what but your body doesn't feel safe. It doesn't feel like it can get rid of the threat fighting or fleeing or freezing. So it just goes straight to fawn. But you are your brain is actually checking in and every single time you feel threatened and running that list, going, can we fight? No. Can we flee? No. Can we freeze? No. Can we fawn? Yes. Okay, we're fawning. So this is why, um, uh, this is why a lot of times we, you'll see people have different expressions at different times. And sometimes they'll have a, a threat expression that they didn't expect. And then they're like, oh, that, that was so weird that I fought in that situation. It's like, oh, that's actually kind of cool because that means that your brain is changing. That means that we're actually coming into some other, it's starting to feel safer to be at these higher levels where you actually do discharge the emotions that are coming through. So um, yeah, that's the, that's the F's. So um, thank you for, for sharing yeah. that. And, and um, if the listeners want to check out the full training that you did on this. Can you say the name of your Facebook group again? Because yeah, it's, it's called becoming trauma-informed, creating safer, shame-free spaces. There is another becoming trauma-informed group that we just realized, but theirs is just not just, but theirs is, um, simply becoming trauma-informed. Ours has that back half on it. Okay. Oh, you know what I'll, and what I can do is I can put this in the show notes. I'll put the link to sure. that group as well. Um, yeah. because I think it's going to be really helpful that, that when I was listening to it, the thing, and I, so I posted some of the graphics that you had done, um, in my BPD groups and the most that people responded to was that faint one. And it's mm -hmm. because you explain in there, you know, that's the dissociation and that's where it's like, when you had said, you know, this is why you essentially don't, there are things you don't remember. And I'm like, oh my gosh, there's like, like, I cannot remember the first four years from first grade to fourth grade. I might have one memory from each of those years during that time yeah, because it was so traumatic for me because of how much I was bullied. And I'm like, holy shit, that's why I don't remember any of that because yeah. it's like going into that faint mode. And that's where, you know, people were commenting they're like, oh my gosh, like 
some people used to sit one one woman said I used to faint all the time and this explains why um yeah and then someone else said well this this is why I can't remember anything you know like it was just so that one right there I was like holy crap that is very much I think people with BPD can under certainly understand that and that trauma response and just knowing too like you have zero the work that we do to help you not, how do I even want to say this? The goal when you do trauma work or when you do therapy or, you know, work around your BPD or your complex PTSD to become less symptomatic, the goal is not to never go into trauma responses. The goal is like not to never feel threatened again. You're going to feel threatened all the time. It's It is a blessing and a curse Mm -hmm. that our brains as humans can perceive threat where there is no threat, right? Our prefrontal cortexes are amazing because they allow us to think about our own thinking and they allow us to make iPhones and shoot things into space and like do all this amazing stuff. And they, it causes the prefrontal cortex is what gives meaning to things. That cognition is what allows us to give meaning to things and make things feel threatening that aren't actually threatening. Mm -hmm. And so blessing and curse. And so just like knowing that if you are somebody who faints often, like the work to be done is not to never go into the trauma response. The work to be done is to actually create safety in your nervous system around having threat responses And it comes back to what we were talking about with the awareness to become aware of, oh, that was a trauma response. Okay. And like you said, I don't even have to go back to the the core memory of like, oh, when I was four, this is what happened. Sometimes that doesn't feel safe. And sometimes you've repressed that stuff. So your brain's like, hey, that's not safe for you to see. If you saw that right now, you would not be okay. So I'm going to keep that repressed, which can be frustrating when you don't know what it is. Um, But like, we, I practice something called forward facing trauma, um, embodiment and, and practice. And that is what happened the moment before I got triggered. Mm-hmm. What happened the moment before I got triggered? Cause if I can identify that, yeah, I may not even know the memory to tie that back to, but I can identify if I can remember what was said and feel that, that sense of threat come up in my body. That's the thing we work with. Mm-hmm. And when you start to do that over and over, the cool thing that happens is it's not that you never get triggered. It's just that you actually start catching it in the moment and being like, oh, wait, I know what this is. Because last time when I got triggered, my my stomach tensed up. I felt like I was going to throw up. I had electricity in my arms and, oh, wait, I'm feeling myself in my, with my stomach tensed up and there's electricity in my arms. So I must be triggered. So instead of like, when we look at the memory afterwards, or we look at the experience afterwards, that's a top-down approach. We're thinking about what happened in our body. And the more and more you do that, your body will start sending you messages of, Hey, we're feeling this way. And you remember what, what, um, why we feel this way when we feel this way. And so we have a bottom up approach. Our body actually starts serving us and being like, Hey, you're feeling this way. You know what this means. Mm -hmm. And that is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's something that I work with clients on too, because it was the first thing, one of the first things that I actually 
I wouldn't say learn in that way, but it was the very first thing was recognizing the emotion within my body. Because I think when you're in this constant heightened state of emotions, you almost forget what it feels like. You're just automatically in that state. Like for example, a lot of, I mean, I have a lot of road rage (laughs) and and I Mm -hmm. still do. It's gotten a little better, but I do still have a lot of road rage. Um, not that I've ever done anything. I just yell in the car. Right. And I get very triggered and activated, but, um, it's almost like I would realize it just would come on, but it doesn't just come on because you actually feel it in your body. But all I knew was all of a sudden I was just in this moment of like, Oh my gosh, like ready to, you know, But so that was one of the first things I started learning when I was doing this work myself too. So it's something I work with others on of, you know, okay, what did you notice in your body? How do you feel when that happens? Mm -hmm. And that's just kind of the first step even, I think. And, and that is a, so I talked about our, my easy method earlier. That's the third step of like, okay, emotional activation, awareness, sensation. And, and what I want to just say here is like, that is really scary. That in itself can make, can bring on a whole new threat response. And for me at first, actually going deeper into my body and my feelings when I was already feeling so much, when I was, when I was like, no, 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 I've been practicing active numbing techniques for like the last 20 years. And now you're telling me you want me to strip those away and like drop into my body. No, that's not safe. But like the more that you do that, that's actually healing as that's healing as well, mm-hmm. because that is showing your body that it's actually safe to feel what it feels and like telling your body, Hey, we're going to actually honor what you're, how you're showing up for us now, instead of like, um, telling you you're wrong or dismissing what you're saying and establishing that brain body connection back in a way that like is supportive for both parts is so huge. It's so huge. And and if you're listening to me talk about this and you're like, okay, yeah, Lee, but also that sound like really like my body hasn't felt safe in a very long time. I feel you. I see you. I hear you totally witness you in that. And just like offering up an invitation to just imagine that that is possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I think that that's a good, cause I know we've ran a little long. My listeners are going to be like, what the heck? Like most of my episodes are, you know, 20 or 30 minutes. <laughs> See this and this be like, is how uh, I roll. Okay. I'm like, I don't do 20 minute podcast episodes. That is not how I roll. We're going to yeah. go deep and we're going to talk about a lot of things. <laughs> um, but I think that that's a good thing we can kind of wrap up on um, yeah. is, is that, you know, um, oh shoot. I totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> oh, just like that. You just imagining the possibility for yourself and just like allowing that. Yes. Thank you. That right there. So I think that, you know, when I think back to before I really started doing the work, it was, it was hard to imagine. And, but I think that that was one of the first things to do is, is essentially like, okay, like life doesn't have to be like this. There is a way out and understanding that. And I, I don't want to say a way out, a way through (laughs) really is a better way to put it. A way through. Yeah. You're not going to be, this isn't something you walk around, right? This isn't something that you find a workaround for that's the hardest part about this is like, or one of the hardest parts about it is like the way out is through and that, that sucks. Like, let's just be perfectly honest about it. That sucks. And as someone who has like gone through to the other side and do I still have things to work through? Absolutely. 
like as someone who has had about 80 to 90% of her symptoms completely resolve, that's why I do the work that I do now. Mm -hmm. It's why I shifted out of taking care of hematology patients and internal medicine to becoming a certified clinical trauma professional and doing this work for other people, because the amount of relief that I've seen people experience is incredible and it's amazing Yeah, and it's possible. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Same. I mean, that's why I decided, you know what? I really want to, I like, I need to coach women who are highly sensitive or who have BPD or feel like it because I spent so much of my, like 30 plus years of my life feeling like you've got to be kidding me. Like, this is what life is. This freaking sucks. (laughs) And, and now I can honestly say that that doesn't mean that I don't have bad days. That doesn't mean that I don't get upset. I mean, gosh, just, you know, yesterday I was upset. Um, but I have figured out now, like I can honestly say I spend more of my time happy or content or, you know, just feeling more fulfilled than miserable. Whereas prior to that, it was pretty much misery with a little yeah. bit of niceness sprinkled in there yeah. every once in a it while. Was, it's like, I'm going to pretend that I'm happy and fine and okay. And this all looks good on the outside. And also internally, I'm like, not good. Yeah. 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 And I think being able to, get people through to that other side is what's really exciting about doing all of this. Um, I'm so glad that you shifted. I remember when you came to me and you were like, I think I want to do this. And I was like, yes. And you were like, okay, but like, also (laughs) it's really scary. scary. This is scary. Yeah. I mean, but this is so needed. I'm so glad you are doing this. I'm so glad that, you know, people are going to have a support system for this and you are a phenomenal coach and everyone who's listening, like, hire Kristen. Cause she's awesome. I'm serious. There are days that I'm like, Oh, Kristen could be coaching me. This is interesting. Like, like hire her, go hire her. There's my plug. <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, I could say other things, but I think that's a nice note to end things on. <laughs> Leave it on Let's a nice happy note. So thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate you coming on. I feel like we could just do a joint podcast together. Honestly, I'm like, we can just talk back and forth because of the shared experiences. Yeah. Um, we'll have you on mine next. And then your listeners can, can come over there and listen to, um, to mine. And then we'll just keep like bouncing back and forth onto each other yeah. work really beautifully. For sure. Well, I really appreciate it. Well, and on that note, oh yeah. Like let's tell people what is, what your podcast is as well, just so they know. Oh yeah. It's called, I'm not for everyone. Um, and it's about unsilencing ourselves, releasing shame around who we are and the things that we've been through building resiliency and just really like owning your authentic self and knowing that that's not going to be for everyone. And that's actually a beautiful thing. And I think that the name is brilliant, which is why I bought the t-shirt because I'm like, it's, <laughs> it's a reminder for myself too. Hey, it's okay to not have everybody like you. Nobody's going to, you know, cause it's like, it's never going to happen, but yeah, that's okay. And, and you don't have, don't worry about that sort of thing. Um, so anyway, that's just my, you know, I could, I could talk and talk about that, but <laughs> <laughs> at the risk of, you know, now we're going an hour and a half or so. And, and, uh, yeah, <clears throat> feel like maybe I should break this up into several episodes, but <clears throat> anyway, thank you. Thank or you, so you could just release it and I trust will. That everyone's going to love listening to it. Cause it was really good. You're it was, this was a great episode. So thank yeah. you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yes. I appreciate, I really appreciate you coming on. 
if you enjoyed the podcast and would like one-to-one support, sign up for a free discovery call through the link in the show notes.